1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. An English mission to Japan arrives in 1613 with all the standard English commodities, including wool and cloth, which the English hope to trade for Japanese silver. But there's a gift for the shogun among them, a silver telescope. As Time and Screech explains in his latest book, The Shogun Silver Telescope, God, Art, and Money in the English Quest for Japan, 1625, there's a lot of meaning behind that telescope. It represented an English state trying to chart its own path as a Protestant country, denoting their support for science and a more open culture in the face of a quote-unquote more backward Catholic Europe. Screech's book charts the background behind this simple gift and what it meant for both Japan and England as they tried to build a trading relationship. Professor Timon Screech is Professor in Ichibun Ken, of the, or the International Research Center for Japanese Studies in Kyoto, after 30 years at SOAS. He is the author of at least a dozen books on the visual culture of the Edo period, including perhaps his best-known work, Sex and the Floating World, Erotic Images in Japan, similar to 1820. His other most recent book and previous interview subject on this podcast was Tokyo Before Tokyo, Power and Magic in the Shogun City of Edo, published by Reaction Books. In 2019, he was elected as a Fellow of the British Academy. Today, Time and I will follow the English journeys to Japan, the reasons for these trips, and what the English encountered when they got there, and we'll think about what we learned from this ultimately failed effort to start a trailership between these two islands. So, Taiman, hello again. Thank you again for for joining us on on the show. Um, First question, uh, why were the English interested in Japan in the first place? How were they hoping to find their niche in um, European trade with Asia?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me back onto your show. It's a a great pleasure to be invited once and a great honor to be invited a second time. Uh, So the history of European trade with Japan obviously begins decades before the English showed up. Um, the English were very late to the game. It had been the Portuguese who came first uh, to agree with Spanish, and then the Dutch, and the English are the kind of um, last ones to arrive. And that means that the English have to demonstrate to the Japanese why they're different. It's not just another Western country turning up, asking the same old, um, trying to get the same old things, selling the same old objects. Uh, English were going to be different. That's what they thought. But Why they sent the ship was that the uh, English had already been trading fairly successfully to Southeast Asia, buying spices. And I think uh, your listeners will all know about the English East India Company, which would turn into a very rapacious and in some ways quite a repellent organization. But in the early days of its foundation, uh, in the very beginning of the 17th century, it was pretty benign and small and a rather frightened body of traders that were sending little tiny ships a long way away in a sometimes vain hope of making profits, but they wanted spice. And spice was a way to make rather insipid North European food more tasty, but also uh, it was regarded as having medical qualities and especially um, nutmeg and the membrane inside the nutmeg called mace which was the world's most valuable commodity, at the time thought to cure plague. And we can think that the head of the East India Company himself, one of the richest and most powerful people in England, died of the plague in 1625. So it was a very, very topical matter to be able to protect yourself from that. And selling spices, buying spices in, uh, in, on Java, uh, which much cheaper than buying them in Istanbul or even in Venice, made the trip worthwhile. And having done that for the best part of a decade, the English East India Company think to themselves, you know, we're pretty well established in Java, our ships are going that far. It shouldn't be too much of an effort just to go further up to Japan. And so they began proposing to do that. And the company having been founded in 1600, uh, first sailing happened in 1601, and the first sailing
0: to Japan was dispatched in 1611, a decade later. So could you tell us a bit more about the state of the English at this point in time? Obviously, they're far from the dominating world power they'd eventually become. Um, how do they see themselves, and how do they see themselves in relation to Europe? England was a
1: somewhat tremulous entity at the time. Um English people are brought up on these stories of Elizabeth I and Drake and wonderful activities on the Spanish main and capturing Spanish uh, silver ships. And these stories are are to extent true. But with the death of Elizabeth I, uh, which happened shortly after the creation of the East India Company and the coming of James uh, the 6th of Scotland came down to be James I of England. There's a realization England has to move in a different sort of way of behaving. It's, it's not good enough to keep stealing sp- uh, Spanish silver. King James is, regards himself as a peacemaker and he, he opens uh, talks and creates a peace with Spain fairly early on. So the English are going to have to become a proper modern style trading nation. And what they got from the Spanish in warfare was silver and all countries needed silver for all kinds of purposes, they can continue to get Spanish silver, but they're going to have to buy it in the future rather than stealing it. And that interferes with their balance of trade. So they start looking for another place where they can acquire silver, hopefully at a lower price and possibly even um, purer than they got from Spanish colonies. And Japan was exactly such a place. Japan uh, had copious amounts of silver. And although they were, widely trading it internationally already, on the whole, the Japanese were selling their silver more cheaply than you could get it in other places. And it was worth traveling all the way from London to Japan to get silver, uh, no longer being able to steal it. They would have to buy it. They'd have to buy it with something. And uh, what they choose to send are is the main English internationally recognized export product of the period, which was woolen cloth. And English woolens were, in fact, already being sold in Japan by the Portuguese and the Dutch when they arrived. Uh, Japanese knew about woolen cloth, but they had no sheep in Japan, so they didn't produce their own. And the English have high hopes that this will be um, a very lucrative trading arrangement and beneficial for both sides.
0: And Japan, too, I think, is different from how we would normally or at least how maybe our mainstream understanding of Japanese history in a very shallow one would suggest. I mean, the mainstream narrative of Japan is that um, it was closed off before being, you know, pried open by, by Commodore Perry. But your book reminds us that that wasn't always the case, if it was always the case. The Japan was in a state of civil war for almost the entire
1: 16th century, it kind of mind boggling that a country would be at war for so long. And during that the course of that period, you know, there was massive destruction, there were, um, you know, every boy was being dragged off to fight, every woman was losing her, her male support, and uh, every building was, dis- was burnt down. And many local warlords began to see international trade as a way both to fund themselves and to gain legitimacy. Uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese were in Japan, to take silver and also it must be said to take slaves, um, but they also wanted converts. And if a warlord would convert, then they would ensure a supply of guns and, and gunpowder, and give also legitimacy. Uh, you know, fight under the under the sign of Christ, and your your fight is good and legal. So the um, the civil wars of Japan, which had begun before the Europeans arrive, probably were exacerbated by. Iberian interventions, but there's a massive battle in the year 1600, easy date to remember, when Tokugawa Ieyasu, who is the shogun named in the title of my book, won an enormous um, victory and effectively became de facto ruler of most of Japan. Japan, of course, is a very long archipelago and hardly anyone controls the whole thing until modern times, but he got the main chunks, which would be um, Edo, modern day Tokyo. Osaka, Kyoto, and some important outlying islands. And three years after this victory, he had the emperor, uh, who's a rather puppet figure, create him shogun. There hadn't been a shogun for a few decades, and there hadn't been a powerful shogun for about a century. So he really changes, or you might say restores, the Japanese state, and Ieyasu was extremely interested in international trade. The idea about Japan being closed off is its an exaggeration at any time in history, but certainly the early 17th century when Ieyasu was recently created Shogun, it's a very international period. However uh, th- there was concern, uh, like in many countries, that international trade is one thing, but missionaries converting your people is another matter. and. Um, the fear that Roman Catholic converts would end up being more loyal to Rome than to the new shogunate was a, was a genuine fear and, and may well have been a, um, um, a, a well-placed fear. There are rumors and there are even some um, hidden documents suggesting that the king of Spain uh, was not at all averse to the idea of using Japanese Christians as a way to overthrow the Japanese state and include it into his empire. Uh, he never tried, and if he thought about it in cool terms, he probably realized Japan is not going to be a place that can be conquered like Mexico or, uh, or the Philippines. But nevertheless, there was concern at the Japanese side that trade is fine, but um, uh, um, conversions need to be watched over with a degree of care and alarm. And, of course, the Japanese were also increasingly worried about the loss of silver. They ne- needed it themselves and vast amounts of silver leaving. And of course, they were deeply offended by Japanese being taken away um, as slaves. So uh, this is the kind of the state into which the English arrived with the Iberians having already traded for a few decades and the Dutch who arrived in 1609. So only a couple of years before the English um, were established themselves too.
0: We'll get into, I think, the the kind of the the religious politics um of europe and how that affected japan later in the interview but you mentioned the the missionaries and um it sounds like the the english were the english in japan were somewhat involved in some of these whispering campaigns about about the missionaries or at least the english thought they were um i think you note what is it um one of the english traders being hurriedly called into a late night meeting to uh to share more about, about the Guy Fawkes Incident and things like that.
1: Yes. So the English that went in 1611 um, arrived in 1613. Of course, they, there was a commander that went to meet the shogun. Actually technically he was the retired shogun at that point, but he still controlled the country Tokugawa Ieyasu and received from him permission to trade as he had given permission to the Spanish, Portuguese and, uh, and Dutch already. And uh, that um, commander named John Sarris returned to England, but he left to run the trading station, a man called Richard Cox. And Cox is an interesting figure because he had no previous links to the East India Company. And people have wondered how it was that he got selected to run this quite sensitive and also potentially very uh, lucrative post. He could expect to make a large amount of personal gain as well as money for the company. How did Cox get selected and we can't quite answer that question exactly but we can look at Cox's previous life which is uh, he worked as a wool merchant he was experienced at selling wool and that's what he'd be doing in Japan but he'd worked as a wool merchant in Bayonne which is of course the southernmost Atlantic port of France and Bayonne was a good place to sell English wool because you could sell it from the French side up into the Pyrenees where of course it's pretty cold in winter and wool should be very desirable Um, the English had poor relations and early on they had no relations with Spain so you couldn't sell wool from the Spanish side but Bayonne had another function uh, in the English government's mind which being the southernmost port of France on the Atlantic coast it was also where illicit Roman Catholic priests from Spain would be um, embarked to come to England which was of course completely illegal Uh, Roman Catholicism in England had been um, not exactly outlawed, but Roman Catholics had to uh, swear allegiance to the English crown, and they had to attend um, English church services, uh, the Holy Communion, as distinct from the uh, Roman Catholic Mass. It's a very intricate matter, and as a historian of Japan, I was a little wary at launching into too many comments about this moment of English history, which is so deeply researched, but the point is that Cox seems to have been employed by the East India Company because he was regarded pretty good at ferreting out covert Roman Catholics and especially Jesuits. The English had a tremendous fear of Jesuits uh, who were regarded as responsible for the attempted assassination of King James I and the entire English government and episcopacy when they were all gathered uh, in London on the um, 5th of uh, of November, today still remembered as Guy Fawkes Day, because Guy Fawkes was the presumed ringleader. It should be added that modern-day historians don't necessarily blame the Jesuits for uh, this assassination attempt, which in any case failed. But at the time, the word Jesuit struck great fear into the English, and they were also convinced that as soon as they turned up anywhere where Jesuits were already operating, they would be vilified to the local rulers. So the English fully expected, the minute their ship arrived, the Jesuits would start telling um, the Japanese that they were just um, brigands and hooligans and pirates and should not be allowed to trade. So Cox uh, operated in Japan, running the trading station for a full decade. And indeed, he, the trading station, by the way, was in Kyushu, so very far away from the Japanese center of power. But uh, he uh, he made a couple of trips to Kyoto and to uh, Edo, modern-day Tokyo, where he certainly divulged what he regarded as facts. Of the um, wickedness of of Jesuits.
0: So I'd like to pivot back to talk about the English East India Company, and you've talked about how it's again was it, w- it was far from the 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 rapacious organization it became centuries later. Um, I remember I, I I was struck by what was it the um, the the story of of is it maybe I'm pronouncing his name wrong but but Saris the person who did the first who did the first trip to Japan who who lands in England and seems to be constantly ignoring messages from his superiors to please make his way back to headquarters and he's always delaying he says oh the winds are bad and the company just kind of is just like kind of crossing its arms and kind of being like well okay then and then just um but it's very interesting kind of just just to see the inner the inner um bureaucracies of of this very new organization could you just go into a bit more detail about about kind of the relations within the East India Company as as an organization.
1: Yes. So the East India Company had, of course, its um, investors, uh, wealthy people. Initially, it's restricted to um, English people. Subsequently, uh, what they call strangers or foreigners who are living in London are also eligible to invest. And each voyage has its own investors, not just to Japan, but the ones which are simply going to Java, buying spices and back. And the problem with East Voyage having its own investors, is that one voyage may um, benefit its investors at, at the expense of the others. So within the East India Company itself, voyages are in competition. So if you can get your voyage to buy up all the spices, for example, and dash back to London with them, your investors will be delighted. But the next ship that comes along will find that there aren't any spices sitting in the market ready to be bought. And eventually the company resolved this by creating what they called a joint stock so that profits were... Um, evened out and regulated across the various sailings. Some voyage was fantastically lucrative, some voyage, well, the the ship might even be lost at sea and you it's a pure loss. Um, So that was from the London investing point of view. But of course they also had to trust uh, the commanders who were sent off in these ships who had literally control of life and death over their sailors. They were negotiating in countries about which very little was known they had to be given a kind of carte blanche to do what they thought was right and those commanders were senior people uh, who were risking their lives and uh, felt it was completely legitimate for them to come back personally enriched as a result of this experience and the company turned a bit of a blind eye to what they called private trade but they didn't like the idea that individual commanders were making their own you know feathering their own nests at the Costs of the company's profits and when saris sailed off to japan and implanted richard cox to run the east india company and came back he was told of course he was going to get silver principally speaking but they did say to him well you know there are other other japanese objects which we know will sell well such as lacquer japanese lacquer was already highly valued in europe and also um To some extent, paintings, Japanese screens, beautiful paired screens often painted on gold. There were already some in the Vatican, and the King of Spain had a few. And um, so they they say to Cyrus, by all means, bring some of these back if there's space in the ship. And he does. Uh, On his own bat, or possibly using company money, he purchases these things uh, and brings them back. But then, as you intimated, when his ship arrived into Plymouth reputedly he started flogging off some of these things before the ship came around to london and the cargo could be properly inventorized uh flogging them off um to his own account right and uh we don't really know but the company got wind of this and started intercepting his mail and it appeared that Cyrus was uh, not really doing what he was quite supposed to do and he kept on saying as you said he said well you know i'm stuck in plymouth i can't the winds are against me. I can't bring the ship around to London, uh, so I'll just have to stay here for a little while. And having got the ship all the way back from Japan, including a period of loading spices on Java, I think that the trip back took him only about nine months. He then spent three months supposedly bringing the ship from Plymouth around to London. Of course, the company was extremely suspicious about this. And when, when and then eventually they said to him, listen, you better come back over land and the ship can come in its own speed. But eventually, hearing this, Cyrus did bring the ship around to London and um, the head of the India company, Sir Thomas Smith, gave him some pretty harsh words and it appears that Saris backed down and said, oh no, no nonsense, all this lacquer, of course I'm, I haven't kept any for myself, it's all going to be given to, to the company um, to sell. And uh, uh, and the company said, okay, well that being the case, you actually have done an excellent job in opening trade with Japan. So they gave him a very generous um, uh, uh, a kind of thank you gift of uh, 500 marks, which was a very, very large amount of money. And so Cyrus basically was rich anyway. The company got their goods, which they then sold. And indeed, Cyrus then retired. He never sailed again. He married a very wealthy heiress from the city of London and uh, they settled down. Unfortunately, his wife died rapidly, uh, probably in childbirth, and he then um, retired to a country village outside London. We don't really hear much much more of him again. But the result was that arriving on this first ship back from Japan was probably silver indeed, but the lacquer uh, caused a considerable interest in London. And immediately after arriving in London, within only weeks, there was a lacquer sale, an auction in London. And interestingly, this is London's first ever art auction. Uh, Today, people think of Christie's and Bonhams and Sotheby's and London is associated with international art auctions. But the first one ever uh, sixteen fourteen December, when the ship came back was Japanese lacquer and they sold it at, at auction, of course, because people didn't really know how much uh, to market it for otherwise. And these items went for very significant sums. Um, it wasn't just trivial exotica. They were um, hugely valued things that would have gone
0: to uh, elite people. So to talking about energy. art, I mean, you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the some of the the paintings that the English bring with them on later trips to Japan, um, and they bring a lot, and they bring um, I think a lot of Titians or more accurately maybe Titian derivatives um, with them on their on their trips to Japan. I guess yeah. the short question is kind of why were they so invested in bringing in bringing art to Japan?
1: It's a very interesting question because the when Cyrus he, he's gone off to Japan 1611, he meets the Shogun in 1613, he's back in Plymouth and then London by autumn 1614. The company was so excited about the options for trading in Japan that they sent the second and then the third ship to Japan before Saris had even come back. So uh, it might have made sense to wait and hear his reports, but they, they didn't. And so they were relying on... Either things they'd picked up from the Dutch or from the Spanish and the Portuguese with whom they have poor relations, but they can, um, you know, spies can give information. Or they were kind of extrapolating from what they'd seen in other Asian countries. And if you think about it, um, the kind of things that the king of Poland or the king of Sweden or the king of Spain or the grand duke of Tuscany, the sort of things they would like are possibly rather similar, right? Right. And so the English think, well, the thing that Shogun of Japan would like and the thing that the Mughal Emperor would like, probably they're about the same. And they had already established trade in India and they had witnessed the fact that the Mughal Emperor, uh, who, Jahangir, uh, he's very well known in, in Indian history as an Esthete. He had a huge interest in painting. It's a great moment in Indian miniature work. But also, strangely enough, though he was, of course, an Islamic ruler, He was very interested in Western art and in Western Christian art, including in Christian themes which contradicted Muslim doctrine, such as the um, resurrection of Christ. So the English hear and directly experience that the Mughal court will absorb masses of art, and they think, well, surely the Japanese will do the same. And so they send off about 100 oil paintings on the third ship, which left somewhat before Saris, got home and those artworks were um, in t- well in th- there were there were three sections really. one was royal gifts from the King of England to the Mughal emperor so they were not going to go on to Japan. Uh, the, the second set were English um, portraits. they thought probably quite rightly that the Japanese rulers would be interested to know what English you know countesses and great ladies, War, their hairstyles, their clothing. And so a large number of portraits of English nobles were sent to go to India and to go to Japan to be given or sold to the Japanese opposite numbers who they thought would like them. And many of the sitters are named. It would be fascinating to know, did the sitters donate their portraits? Did they say, oh, you know, a countess of Uh, Of Rochester or something says, I want my portrait to go, Uh, who knows? But in any case these portraits went. And the third category were what the East India Company called lascivious paintings and lascivious is a kind of intriguing word, right? What they appear to have been is what we would today call classical nudes So the great establisher of the classical nude genre in Europe was the Venetian painter you mentioned um, Titian Tiziano, he was already dead by this point, but the models he'd set up of kind of you know Venus and Cupid and Satyrs and Susanna bathing, his models were widely copied in Venice itself, uh, all across um, Italy, and uh, you could pick up a, a kind of uh, knockoff Titian equivalent for uh, not too much money. And when the East India Company decided to commission these uh, lascivious paintings, indeed they send an agent not to Italy, that's too far, they haven't got time, they send an agent to Rouen. And Rouen was the main French international port. It was the only French port that was allowed to bring in trade from um, non-European countries. So uh, um, uh, Rouen, of course, is rather inland, but sailing ships can sail that far in. And so they go and they buy specifically Venetian paintings in Rouen. And they come back with about 50 of them. And we have the titles of most, which were indeed um, the sort of things attributed to Titian. But the prices make it quite clear they could never have been real Titians. They would have, it would be stupid to send a real Titian to Japan without yet knowing what the Japanese would think of it. But um, knockoff equivalents, which were in the, pr- in the price range of about five to ten pounds, which is which is good art. It's not rubbish. But of course, Titian itself himself would have been much more than that. And these are sent off. And when Cyrus comes back to uh, London in 1614 autumn and arrives in Plymouth, he hears this ship has gone, and he said, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's exactly what I would have told you to send. Just like the Mughal emperor, the Japanese have a um, high understanding of art. They would be very interested to know about um, our Western paintings. And he may have said, although it's not recorded as him saying it, he may have said the Jesuits themselves have set up a Western art school in Japan, which is producing Christian art. So why don't we send some things telling them about our worldview too? Because Cyrus um, confirmed the Japanese would like this, the East India Company, but, but, but Cyrus said something else. He said the Japanese also love paintings on themes of war. And the English had sent portraits and lascivious paint. They had not sent anything on the theme of war. So they dash off another sailing at the very end of 1614, even though sending out a ship in winter is a bit risky, uh, with a large number of war pictures. They haven't got time to commission any, so they send war prints. And not oil paintings, but prints. And war themes were pretty easy to procure in London because the whole history of the Spanish Armada, the wars of the religion on the continent, you could buy these things um, in London, and they were bought and sent off in a little ship which is supposed to speed uh, and, and hopefully catch up with the one carrying the oil paintings, which indeed it does. And the ship was called The Advice uh, because um, the cargo had been put together on the advice of Cyrus, and it it, it got to Java where it met the ship carrying the um, oil paintings because that ship had gone via India first, and they Regroup there, and they put together what they think will be the perfect cargo for Japan, and that will be the third English ship uh, to so arrive. So
0: this is an interesting segue because the book is filled with missed connections like this. You know, ships leaving before other ships can make it back with the goods they need or the information they need. Um, the 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 second sailing to Japan or later sailings in Japan leave before the first sailings can make it back. People are waiting around for boats to arrive. The boat doesn't show up. They assume, well, I guess the boat sank and they leave, and then the boat shows up a week later. <laughs> and so it seems like how did just, I mean, it yeah. perhaps we're, we're spoiled by by our modern um, day, you know, instant communications and everything. But it kind of leads the question, kind of how did anyone communicate and actually run global operations at this point in time?
1: Um, it's it's a very good question and um, um, of course we have to completely shed our um, understanding of certitude and business confidence and contract law all those things completely um, irrelevant and and they were probably irrelevant any case but when you're sending ships all the way to Asia, it was um, uh, really quite a hap- haphazard affair. having said that, I'm actually quite impressed by the uh, level of documentation that was retained. Uh, regrettably, uh, the East India Company uh, archive is quite well preserved in the British Library, but it's lost, there's some chunks you know missing, and sending the first ship to Japan is precisely a moment where a chunk is missing. So we don't have details about how they thought up the cargo and so how they selected Cox and Saris to le- lead. But um, there is a, a copious archive of letters sent back from the various um, ships and every every ship come. The Dutch and the English on the whole uh, assist each other in conveying each other's um, correspondence, although of course they always steam it open and check what the others are saying about each other, but you you don't throw somebody else's correspondence overboard. So they can rely on the Dutch to bring things back and forth to them. Um, Things in India can come back over land. It's not Impossible to send a, a, a courier from the Mughal court through Iran to um, Aleppo, where the English ships are sailing. There's also an English um, turkey company sailing back and forth to Aleppo and to Istanbul. So um, things, curiously enough, do, do tend to get through. But we often have a letter which says, you know, as I refer to my previous letter, and the previous letter is in extant. So there was a, a lot lost one slightly intriguing little episode is that ships tended to stop at the Cape, uh, where today, of course, Cape Town, and they were stopping there to to, to refuel or, or revital, right, to take on water and uh, and meat and vegetables. And they didn't do a lot of trading there, um, but there they would inscribe stones. There was a thing called the post office stone, where a ship would 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 you know inscribe on a rock. We pass through at this stage, this is the name of our ship, these people are are, are dead, this commander is now in charge, and, and people would um, pick up that uh, uh, um, uh, over time. The number of sh- ships lost is not so great, actually, and I think what's um, interesting about sailings is that once the ship is at sea, unless there's a really major storm, it's pretty safe. Ships tend to wreck when they are near to coasts, because that's where um, reefs and and, and rocks and things are. So once the ships kind of out of Plymouth has got away uh, and um, and if the food lasts, then they tend to be able to get to Java. Uh, and then from Java up to Japan is uh, is not so difficult. Uh, the English are not allowed to stop in the Philippines because that's Spanish. And under the Treaty of uh, Peace with Spain, they're not allowed to intrude into Spanish areas. So they can't stop in in, in, in um in in the Philippines, but they can stop in what's today called Okinawa, then an independent kingdom called the Ryukyus uh, if they need. They on on the whole they don't. They go straight up to um, uh, to
0: to Japan. So we haven't talked as much about, in some ways, the the other side of the story, which is the Japanese. You know how, and so I guess how do the Japanese receive the English? How do they receive the the gifts they get, and how do they kind of see uh, this? You know, island island country on the other side of the world. Mm.
1: There's a um, kind of factor X, which I haven't mentioned yet, but I should mention it it now, which is that the first Dutch ship that arrived in Japan before the creation of the Dutch East India Company, it was a ship which sailed um, out of Rotterdam and uh, uh, all the other ships were wrecked and one sailed into Japan in 1600. It was um, piloted by an Englishman. And that's not so strange. English and Holland had very good relations, and uh, um, so this fellow was called William Adams, and he um, remained in Japan from sixteen hundred right through until his death in sixteen twenty-five. In the course of twenty-five years, he uh, married, had children, he had uh, obviously very good Japanese, and he became a confidant of the shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu, and. Adams had fought, or rather he'd been in charge of a supply ship at the Spanish Armada. He knew firsthand, uh, or he thought he knew, the, the wickedness and the danger of Spain and what the Jesuits um, uh, put European Catholic kings up to and how the Jesuits instigated regicide and such things. And he informed ES about that. It's, it, it's, it's pretty clear he did so. Uh, and... This would have allowed Iyazu to kind of triangulate what he was hearing from the Spanish. It's not that he believed everything Adams said and disbelieved everything the Spanish said, but by hearing two sides, he was able to come to his own views about things. So uh, the English East India Company was vaguely aware that there was this English person already in Japan, having gone on a Dutch ship, and when Cyrus sails in sixteen, uh, sails off sixteen eleven, arrives sixteen thirty, he's told to try and find this person, Adams, and, and ideally to enlist him to work for the East India Company, which indeed Adams uh, agrees to do. So they have a very immediate and very valuable um, uh, inroad into the shogun's court. And Cyrus turns up with this gift of a um, what the English call a silver, actually it's a silver gilt telescope. In other words, it looks like it's gold, but the material is actually silver, the often silver gilt Thing silver is tarnishes very quickly, right? And gold is too soft. So silver gilt, uh, the title of my book says a silver telescope because silver gilt telescope is too long. In any case, they give this object and the Shogun is uh, quite startled by it. He's obviously never looked through a telescope in his life before, what exactly he could see through it what the capacity of an early 70th century telescope is, is possibly debatable. But of course, Galileo at this time was making his extraordinary discoveries to the telescope. In fact, Galileo's discoveries were known to the English uh, just before they commissioned this beautiful telescope to send to Japan. So they're clearly sending off something which has the latest scientific and indeed military complicability. You can you can use a telescope uh, on land um, for seeing what any enemy armies are doing. Anyway, the the shogun's court record mentions the arrival of the English with this silver telescope and the fact that the shogun received it and the Japanese archive also has a transcription of the letter that the shogun sent back to King James of England thanking him for the telescope in which he said, I was amazed by this a present which I had never seen before and I never expected to see. So uh, this object clearly had... Um, um, cultural value in Japan, it may very well have had um, uh, military value. It could even have had had some um, astronomical value. There's no record of the Japanese having used it to spot the heavens like Galileo did. I mean, it's Galileo was, could see that because he was extremely punctilious. Most person people looking through an early 17th century telescope can't see a whole lot, but they can see an approaching army. So it's very likely the shogun used it in one of his subsequent battles and possibly even it got broken in the course of that because it doesn't survive today.
0: So I had one more question. Um, one parallel I made upon reading your book is with um the is is with the Dutch embassy to Beijing in Qing, China, um, as covered in a previous <laughs> um Asia View Books podcast interview um on Tony Wanjai's last embassy. And the reason why I made that comparison was that it's an effort to kind of woo one of these big Asian countries, um, from a European nation that doesn't normally kind of feature in the mainstream history of, uh, or mainstream dramatic history. Uh, it also wasn't successful, um, mostly due to events outside of, uh, of the missions control. Um, and, and this approach to Japan kind of seems to also be like that. It's, a mission from a country that doesn't quite feature in the mainstream dramatic history about Japan was most about the Portuguese and the Dutch. Um, it doesn't succeed, I think, mostly because I think events happening in Europe. The company decides to focus more on India, I believe. Um, but I guess kind of to kind of end the interview, uh, is there a way that this these missions could have turned out differently? And what can we learn from England's efforts to woo Japan?
1: Um It probably couldn't have turned out differently because they were operating under some misconceptions. First of all, they went to Japan to sell wool, and they were aware that English wool was being sold to Japan, and they were aware that Japan has no sheep. Therefore, Japan was not itself a wool-producing country. Uh, They think, well, we'll sell us wool, but it hadn't kind of occurred to them that the Japanese had no wool. It's true, but the Japanese already had perfectly good winter garments, which they'd been wearing for centuries, and it wasn't obvious that wool was better. In fact, some of the English traders, when they get to Japan the first winter, they start wearing Japanese winter garments because they find them nicer than the wool. And the Japanese say, you're not even wearing them yourself. How do you expect us to wear it? Uh, secondly, bringing wool all the way from London in a um, wooden ship is a pretty difficult enterprise because water leaks in, there's salt air, much of the wool arrived um, rotten, it couldn't all be sold. Uh, but there was a third misconception, which was the whole idea about sailing from England to Japan via the Cape of Good Hope and India and Java was intended to be a short term option. I think all your hear- your listeners have heard about the um Northwest Passage sailing to Asia from Europe through what they thought was a sea. Today we know it's the Hudson Bay. You can't get through the Northwest Passage over America. But the Northeast Passage over Russia was also very much explored by the East India Company uh, for the good grounds that there were some friendly Russian cities along the north or towns, and they thought it's much better than sailing through Canada where there's no friendly um, uh, metropolis. So the East India Company thinks that they will sail from London to Japan and back over Russia, Dramatically shorter, they believe, because they're not aware of the existence of Siberia. They think you just say a little bit beyond, um, you know, Moscow and Archangel drop down south, and there you get to Japan. They don't realize the seas are permanently frozen. So once they realize Siberia exists, therefore, actually, it's not that much shorter going via Russia. Secondly, the sh- the seas are unnavigable, and thirdly, the Japanese have their own perfectly good winter garments. Therefore, they don't want to buy English wool. Then they realize. Um, the whole thing doesn't work, and then they say to themselves, "Listen, you know, the Dutch and the, Sp- and the and the and the Portuguese and the Spanish are bringing over Japanese silver. We can just buy it from them. There's no need to send our own ships." It makes me think a little bit of um, uh, airline. You know, every country in the past used to have to have its own flag carrier airline, and even if they were hugely loss-making, you weren't a proper country unless you had your own um, airline. And it was the same; you had to have your own East India Company. But then they say, "Listen." We'll buy the stuff in amsterdam why not and the east india company as you say puts much more effort into trade um with india uh, and um, uh, um that goes very well one might say possibly to the detriment of the indians themselves the east indian company
0: becomes so strong and powerful um in, in India. so with that thank you for listening to our interview with time and screech author of the shogun silver telescope got art and money in english quest for japan 6625. and 25. Uh, time. And I had, I have, I guess, one more question for you. And it's the question I in every, every interview with, um, which is kind of, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you?
1: Well, I'd be delighted if your, um, if your listeners choose to Google um, my name and uh, the Shogun Silver Telescope, and the book is uh, easily there to buy. It's with Oxford University Press that has pretty good worldwide distribution. It's currently in paperback. Um, sorry, it's currently hardback, but I hope that Enough purchasers might encourage the OUP to put a um, paperback out, which will be much cheaper. But my next project, which I'm um, well embarked on now, is that the shogun uh, Ieyasu, having received his telescope, died in 16, 16, thir- uh, sixteen thirteen. Died in sixteen sixteen, and his role in um, pacifying the country and ending the civil war was so enormous, and so um, people were so such gratitude to it that he was deified. And so my current project is on the deification of Tokugawa Ieyasu. Uh, and today this can still be seen. Of course, nobody today regards the shogun as a genuine god. But but the, his main site of worship is at a town called Nikko. Um, today you can easily do it as a day trip from Kyoto, uh, from from Tokyo. And his gorgeous mausoleum there has recently been. Uh, restored at tremendous expense by the Japanese government. So I, I urge any of your visit and your listeners to, if who are in Japan to go to Nikkor. And in due course, I hope they'll be able to read my uh, my book on that subject too.
0: Well, something to look forward to when we can all travel again. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Um, the Interview Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us uh, interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Elizabeth LaCouture, author of Dwelling in the World, Family, House, and Home in Tianjin, China, 1860 to 1960. But before then, thank you so much, Timon, for joining me today.
1: Pleasure.